one. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, Matthew and I are joined by Jeff Patterson. Jeff Patterson works for TSN 1040 and hosts the VanCast. How are you doing today, Jeff? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. So you're an accomplished broadcast media and podcaster. So how'd you really get into the field? Wow. I feel like I'm going to start one of those once upon a time kind of stories. I've uh, been at this for a while, <laughs> but uh, I grew up in a household that had the radio on all the time and born and raised in Vancouver. CKNW was the big station. It sort of was the dominant station in the market and it was news and talk. And so there were sports casts and there were talk shows and, you know, top of the hour news. And it was just, it was always on. And my parents listened to the radio and by extension, so did uh, we as kids. And I developed a fascination with these voices that were coming out of this box on the wall. And, you know, as I got older and, and I'm going back to when I was sort of, you know, eight, nine years old, I thought, man, this is pretty cool. Like these people are talking about all these topics of the day, whether it's news or politics or, you know, sports. And uh, as I got a little bit older and started to think about, you know, what do I want to do when I grow up? Uh, this idea of getting into radio and, and particularly talking about sports on the radio just seemed like it had a real appeal to me. So uh, if you ask my parents, by the time I was about 12, like I, I really kind of had this sense that this was something that I wanted to try. And from about that point on, you know, the decisions that I made about what was I going to do after high school and how was I going to get to a point that I would have this opportunity to to give radio a try. So uh, I went to university at UBC. And while I was there, you know, I had friends that were playing intramural sports when they weren't in class or they were parts of fraternities. I joined the student radio station. And that was really my true introduction to, you know, like a lot of people, I had held a microphone in front of the TV and done play-by-play watching games and, and those types of things. But in terms of actually, you know, getting to put on a headset and work in legitimate radio, even though it was the campus radio station and the reach wasn't great, uh, I was on the air. I was doing play-by-play for the UBC Thunderbird hockey team and football team. And I did some basketball games. I got a chance to host a, a talk show uh, on the campus radio station. And so, you know, that just kind of furthered this idea that, yeah, like this is what I want to do. And one of the real beauties of being a part of the campus radio station was twice a month for two games each month, the Canucks would grant us a press pass. And so I was able to get into Vancouver Canuck games, into the press box, you know, around these people that I had grown up listening to on the radio and now I was rubbing shoulders and elbows with them and, and getting to, to meet them and introduce myself. And, you know, again, all these little steps that just kind of drove home the point that, yeah, this is what I want to do. And so uh, after university, I went to uh, BCIT, which is the BC Institute of Technology, the two-year broadcast journalism program. And from there, uh, springboard uh, into my professional life. And I was really fortunate that my first job out of school was in Kamloops, which, you know, I had heard of <laughs> as a city. Um, I had lots of classmates that had to move all around northern British Columbia and sort of small towns. And I was prepared to do that. But I was fortunate enough that right out of broadcast school, uh, I got a job in news in Kamloops. And I parlayed that uh, into a sports job at the radio station in Kamloops and then a play-by-play job doing play-by-play for the Kamloops Blazers, uh, which I did for five years. And again, uh, you know, timing is everything in life. Uh, I got the job in Kamloops doing play-by-play. My first year, the Kamloops Blazers won the Memorial Cup 
on home ice. So here I am, this young broadcaster, and the first year, uh, this is a team that had Jerome McGinley and Shane Doan and Darcy Tucker and Nolan Baumgartner and Jason Strudwick and Brad Lukowicz and all. I mean, just really one of the great junior hockey teams of all time, coached by Don Hay. And in my first year, not only were they a good team, they won the Memorial Cup on home ice. So just an incredible turn of events for me that, you know, barely a year out of broadcast school, I'm calling a Memorial Cup final where the home team and the team that I've been covering all season ends up hoisting the championship. All right. And do you think that kind of helped you help mold you into the job you now have with TSN hosting podcasts? Do you think that really helped the broadcast side of things? Oh, absolutely. I mean, every experience is a good experience. It's kind of what you make of it. But, you know, way back when I, I had the dream of being an NHL play-by-play guy. And I sort of joke that the dream is still on the shelf. I don't think that the, the dream has died. I don't think it's going to happen now at this stage of my career. But, you know, even though I haven't done NHL play-by-play, you know, I, I've covered hockey for more than 25 years and have been on the front line, whether it's hosting pre- and post-game shows, whether it's, you know, at the rink on game day, doing interviews with players and coaches and covering the games later that night. And, you know, for the last three years, I've been a dedicated Canucks reporter. That's my job. I am the Canucks reporter for TSN 1040 in Vancouver, covering this team home and away. And I, like, I didn't think for a second that that opportunity was going to present itself where I would travel and I would go around North America and wherever the Canucks were, you know, I was there too, covering every game, every practice. And it's been a blast. And obviously, uh, like everything, COVID has thrown a wrench into that. And so things are kind of on hold right now. And I got my fingers and my toes crossed that when hockey is up and running again, that I'll get the opportunity to resume the job that I had because it really, it's turned into a dream job. But yeah, I mean, I go back to, you know, I go back to broadcast school. The two-year broadcast program that I took here in Vancouver was geared towards news. And I understood that. And I had some classmates that, they didn't want to do news. They only wanted to do sports. And I understood that, you know, I, man, there are so few just pure sports jobs in the media that, you know, you better be prepared to do some news and take your chances where you can to to branch off into sports. And so that was sort of my whole mindset was I'll go through the program, uh, do what they want me to do, cover news. My first job in Kamloops was a junior news job. I was covering city council and school board and, you know, chasing traffic accidents and those types of things. And and it was fun. I mean, it was in the business. It was what I wanted to do. But any opportunity I had to do sports, I jumped at. And so I started in Kamloops in the summer of 1993. Well, that summer, Kamloops was hosting the Canada Summer Games, which, you know, is a multi-sports competition. I mean not on the scale of the Olympics, but, you know, a scaled down version where uh, there was, you know, basketball and soccer, kayaking and canoeing and mountain biking. And, you know, there were a bunch of different sporting events happening all over the town. Um, like the radio station just didn't have enough people in the sports department to cover something like the Canada Games properly and fully. And so here I was, the junior news guy. I was like, bring it on. Like, let me cover some sports. I'll do whatever you want. So, uh, it was a great opportunity for me. And that's one of the things that I think I've been really good at over my career is identifying opportunities and pouncing. And bosses love it when people show initiative. If you go to the boss and you say, hey, you know, I think this could be done uh, differently or we're not doing this. How about if I jump at this and if it's not going to cost the boss money, 
uh, if it's just giving somebody an opportunity, generally I have found that decision makers are willing to to go along with those types of ideas if you show some initiative and you show a little bit of drive. So, you know, I go back to my early days in Kamloops and my early days in broadcasting and really over the time that I have had a bunch of different jobs, one of the things I've always tried to do is look for opportunities, things that aren't being done or things that maybe could be done a little bit better and suggest that to the boss. You don't want to come across like you're telling the boss how to do his job, but you know, you got to be clever about it and careful. But I do think that that's been one of my skills over the years is just identifying areas that I think that I can bring some value and then jumping in with both feet. All right. And I just want to go back a little bit and you said you covered the Memorial Cup and I just want to ask if you have any like interesting stories or anything interesting that happened at the Memorial Cup that you kind of want to share any cool stories or anything like that. Well, the whole thing was incredible, especially for a young broadcaster to be in the middle of it. And, you know, I rattled off all those names, uh, you know, the Brandon Wheat Kings were there as uh, the Blazers were the host team. So uh, the Brandon Wheat Kings and the Blazers met in the Western Hockey League final. And, and by virtue of the fact Kamloops was hosting, Brandon, I got an invitation to the Memorial Cup. So, you know, it was a good Brandon team. Wade Redden was on it. Uh, you know, Detroit was the team that came out of the Ontario Hockey League. Brian Berard was sort of the big star. And uh, Ian Wade Redden had, uh, you know, it was their draft year. So there was a lot of attention around them. And the Quebec team was from Gatineau. And uh, they were sort of an afterthought. They didn't really figure terribly prominently in that competition. But, you know, for me, that was my first exposure to the Memorial Cup and what it meant. And, you know, I grew up in Vancouver where, you know, it mostly it's about the Canucks. And, you know, at that time, the Western Hockey League wasn't here in Vancouver. So, um, you know, I was aware of the Western Hockey League, but I didn't really know what it meant to a city like Kamloops until I moved there. And those guys were like the players were rock stars in a city like that one, especially, you know, the year that I called the games was the Memorial Cup of 95. Well, they also won it in 92 and again in 94. So, you know, they won it three years in a four-year span, which will never happen again in junior hockey. Like, it really was a true dynasty. And so I got there. Like, you can imagine uh, the expectations on these guys, but also sort of just the the profile that the players had in a city like that one. Like, they truly, uh, they were stars. They were celebrities around town. And so it's just kind of cool to to sort of immerse myself in all of that and – you know, my first year on the bus with them, traveling around Western Canada and up and down uh, the West Coast of the U.S., Portland and, you know, Spokane. Tacoma was still in the league back then. And, you know, so I, I've got a ton of memories about just the bus trips and some of the places that I got to go that I had never been to before. And, you know, getting a chance to see places in Western Canada that I had heard of but hadn't visited. Uh, you know, so it was a ton of fun. I, I My goal as I kind of came out of broadcast school and and got a sense that yeah maybe this was a possibility you know my goal was to get into the western hockey league and have a play-by-play job by the time i was 30 and i think if my numbers are right i got that job when i was 24 i got hired when i was 23 i worked a year in news and then uh, just before my my 25th birthday uh, i was calling play-by-play in the western hockey league so like i was way ahead of my own schedule then and as it turned out i was out of the western hockey league by by the time i was 30 so you know life changes and and it's good to have goals but i think you also have to be prepared to you know adapt and adjust and sort of take things on as they come and so uh you know like i know people have blueprints about the way they want their career to work out 
you know, life comes at you quickly. COVID's a great example of that. Nobody could see it coming. And so you, you really do in this business. I think you have to be adaptable and you have to be flexible. And I have tried to do that throughout my career. I think my versatility, my ability to do a whole bunch of different things, uh, that's been fun for me. But I also think that it's been one of my sort of strong suits is that uh, when those opportunities that I talked about a little earlier, you know, whether it's play by play, whether it's doing sports updates, whether it's hosting talk shows, whether it's reporting, you know, you name it. Uh, I like to think that uh, I've had a decent degree of success doing all those things. So uh, I've tried to be as versatile as I can. And here I am still employed. So that's a good thing. And, you know, I think it served me well through all these years. All right. And you said out of broadcast school, you got a job for a year, then you went to Kamloops. So how did you get the job at TSM? So, yeah, without going through my whole resume, I mean, I, I got the job in Kamloops. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, I'm from Vancouver. I had used those press passes to get into Canuck games. I knew a lot of the people that were working in media in Vancouver and had kept in touch over the years. And, you know, that Blazers team and that Blazers job had a little bit of a, a profile that I think people in the media in Vancouver, they knew who I was to a degree. I'm not going to say that everybody knew, oh, here's Jeff Patterson. But but I think, you know, there was uh, some prestige to being the play-by-play play job, play-by-play voice of the Kamloops Blazers. So, you know, Kamloops is three hours from Vancouver. People had a sense of what was going on around the province in terms of radio jobs and those types of things. So I just kept in touch with the the right people. And I came, I left the job in Kamloops after five years. I just decided that, you know, it was fun, but I was approaching my 30th birthday and I wasn't making a lot of money and thought that there had to be more out there for me and, and had always wanted to work in my hometown. So I took a bit of a flyer. I gambled on myself and, and just moved back to Vancouver without work and started making phone calls to all those people that uh, I had uh, made some contacts with over the years. And sure enough, I got an opportunity at CKNW, the station that I grew up listening to. All of a sudden, here I am, and I'm now working there, which like absolutely mind-blowing to me uh, that, you know, when you talk about sort of dreams coming true as a kid growing up and listening to CKNW every day, to have the chance to work there as my first place to work in Vancouver, uh, you know, things were going along nicely. So, uh, I was, ho I got hired. I didn't, you know, I wasn't doing play by play for the Canucks, but I got hired out of Kamloops to host the Canucks pre and post game shows on CKNW. So now I was part of a, an NHL broadcast and it was the next best thing to do in the play by play. Didn't travel, but I worked all the games either at the rink or out of the studio. And, um, it was a ton of fun. And so I was with CKNW for five or six years and then they lost the broadcast rights. The broadcast rights moved over to what is now TSN 1040. It started up as Team 1040. And I wanted to stay with the Canuck rights. I wanted to somehow, some way, be involved in the Canuck broadcasts. Like I, I had done it for five years by this point. And, you know, I, I felt like this is my strong suit. It's what I liked doing, analyzing the games, you know, taking phone calls after games, being on the front line, having opinions, all those types of things. It was awesome. And then it was crushing that the station I was working for lost the broadcast rights. So uh, I got laid off because they didn't have the need for a big sports department now that the Canuck rights had gone. And so, you know, there have been a few disappointments along the way in my career, and, and that was one of them. But, you know, you have decisions to make. You either think... Um, is this the end of the line or is this, uh, you know, do I have to dig in here and, and go 
sell myself and, and show these guys that, you know, they should want me as part of their uh, broadcast. And, and so team 1040 started up and they wanted to do things a little bit differently than CKNW had done. And so I didn't get work there right away, but I kept banging on the door and banging on the door. And uh, sure enough, I was offered some part-time work. And, you know, once I got in my foot in the door, it's sort of that old story, get your foot in the door and, and then make things happen from there. And that's been the case. And so I've been, with Team 1040 and now TSN 1040, really since 2006. Um, and so it was just really, it was persistence. It was, you know, getting yourself in the market for a bunch of years. And then uh, when the opportunity presented itself, uh, being prepared to sort of knock on doors and make things happen. And so uh, that's kind of a constant theme in this business, I think. And, uh, you know, so get the experience you can, where you can, and then, you know, hopefully that experience serves you well uh, in those moments, sort of those pivotal moments in your career. And that was clearly one of them to get an opportunity at Team 1040 and to have been there ever since. All right. And uh, so for all the people who don't know how broadcast rights kind of work, can you explain how it kind of went from CKNW to Team 1040, like how that kind of switches over yeah i mean those are decisions that are made way above me but you know it's a big mm -hmm. market in vancouver and the canucks were uh, coveted uh, as a property on the radio now they had been at cknw for 35 years uh, all the years that the vancouver canucks had been in the national hockey league going back to 1970 cknw had been their home on the radio so this was a massive shift this was big news in a place like vancouver that the canucks rights were moving and essentially, it becomes a bidding war that uh, you have to pay the Canucks uh, a fee to have the right to broadcast their games. And I think CKNW, uh, you know, it was owned by Chorus at the time, which is uh, Chorus owns a bunch of radio stations across the country. And my guess is that Chorus didn't want to pay what the Canucks were looking for and maybe thought that loyalty of all those years would help them in these negotiations and Team 1040 was sort of the new kid in town. It was the all-sports station. It was trying to get a foothold. It was looking for, uh, you know, content. Like, if, if they get the rights to the games, not only do they have the games at night, but, you know, it gives them all-day material to talk about the Vancouver Canucks, and it gives them, if you're the rights holders, you know, you get some special access to the coaches and players and the general manager, and, you know, it's all about uh, content and filling programming hours on the radio. So ultimately, I mean, the short answer is that it came down to who was prepared to write a bigger check, and I guess in that moment, uh, the powers at Team 1040 felt that it was in their best business interest to write that check and make it happen. And so... Um, you know, the, the right shifted and life goes on and it was a little bit different, but uh, uh, they've shifted again since uh, Team 1040 had them up until, I want to say, 2017. And then Sportsnet came into the market with a, an all sports station here in Vancouver. And of course, Sportsnet had the television rights and Rogers uh, has its name on the arena here. And so Rogers got into the game and now the broadcast rights in Vancouver are on Sportsnet 650. And so for the last three years, when I talked about being a dedicated Canucks reporter, we don't have the rights anymore. And, you know, TSN 1040 is still uh, the sports leader in a place like Vancouver. It's got the, the rating share, but 650 has the Canuck rights. And so the decision was made, well, Boy, I mean, the Canucks are the, the number one property in Vancouver. If they're going to be playing all these games, you know, we want to have somebody on the ground in every city, wherever they're playing, and at every practice in case there's news and, and 
you know, having access to the players uh, again to fill content hours on the radio. And so uh, they posted the job and I applied for it and I was hired to be that dedicated Canucks reporter. And that's where I am now. So, you know, I've bounced around a little bit, as I mentioned, and I think you have to be prepared for some ups and downs in an industry like this one. And you never know when those rights are going to change. Like I always thought that, hey, uh, the rights would stick with 1040 for a long, long time. As it turned out, I think they were there for 12 years and then they moved on and who knows where they go from here. I think uh, Sportsnet has a five-year contract. They're three years in now. So in a couple of years, you know, we'll see if there's a bidding war for the Canucks rights again or if they renew and they stick at uh, Sportsnet 650. But, you know, that's kind of the story of where they are here in Vancouver and sort of how I have always managed to stick close to this hockey club in some fashion or form. And uh, staying on the Canucks, um, this uh, this offseason they've gone through a little bit of a uh, a shift, uh, for lack of a better word. He's uh, saying goodbye to players like Tyler Toffoli, Jacob Markstrom, Chris Tanev, Josh Beeble, bringing in players like Nate Schmidt, um, jo- um, not Josh, Braden Holpe, which um, – had an, that was an interesting story reading about uh, him when he, uh, a few days ago when he was trying to come up to uh, <laughs> to Canada and he could, he was uh, denied access because of his uh, two pet turtles. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so after going through a shift like that, um, what are your thought? What are your thoughts on the off season as a whole for, uh, for the Canucks? Do you think they were um, they've uh, like? Oh my God! What's the right What's the right word? Do you think they've they've improved? They've uh, like they've gotten worse over the over the off season. What's your opinion on it? Well, let's just go back a little bit before I answer that question, and I'll get to that in a sec. But I mean, it's been an interesting five years here in Vancouver as the Sedin era ended, and you know the the team sort of shifted away from uh, twenty years where Daniel and Henrik were. You know, part of this organization for the last decade, they were frontline guys, not only in Vancouver, but around the NHL. Uh, The height, obviously, was 2011 when they got to game seven of the Stanley Cup final and ultimately fell just short. And so it's sort of been a period of transition here in Vancouver. And for five years prior to this past summer, they hadn't made the playoffs, right? Like they'd been pretty dark years in Vancouver. Uh, Willie Desjardins was here for three years as head coach. He got fired. They bring in Travis Green. He had made some improvements, but they still hadn't been able to get to the playoffs. And so then COVID hits and nobody's sure what's going to happen. You know, they weren't guaranteed to be a playoff team last March the 12th when the season was halted. They were a bubble team. They were right there in the mix with a whole bunch of other teams, Calgary and Minnesota and Winnipeg and Nashville. And, you know, there were 13 games to go and they were scrapped. And so nobody knew if they were going to make the playoffs for a sixth straight year. Now, if they hadn't made the playoffs and that had been six straight years, I do think that there would have been some massive changes. I'm not sure that Jim Benning, the general manager, uh, would have survived. I don't know about Travis Green and his future as the head coach. But when the playoffs were expanded to include 24 teams and they got into the bubble, you know, that's where they made some hay, right? They beat Minnesota and then they advanced and they eliminated the defending Stanley Cup champion, St. Louis Blues. And then they pushed Vegas to seven, even though, you know, the last couple of games, they leaned so heavily on Thatcher Demko and they didn't play all that well, but they were in it. You know, it was a scoreless game in game seven with six minutes to go in the third period. Like they were that close to advancing to the Western Conference final. So, you know, one thing the Canucks did really well was take advantage of getting invited into the expanded playoffs. And it was great. It was a ton of fun to see this city 
energized about the Canucks for the first time in five years. It wasn't about doom and gloom. It was about this team and its young players, Pedersen and Hughes and Besser and Horvat, you know, rising up in this, uh, in these extraordinary circumstances of playoff hockey and the bubble and nobody in the building and all those types of things. But the Canucks young players showed that they were ready. So there was some real excitement that hadn't been felt here in Vancouver in a while. And then they bow out to Vegas in seven. And, and then we get to early October with free agency. And then that was one of the wildest weekends that I can remember covering the Vancouver Canucks in a lot of years where, you know, I, I figured that they were going to try to do everything in their power to retain Jacob Markstrom. I mean, he'd been their two-time MVP the last couple of seasons, uh, really had provided them elite level goaltending when the team in front of him wasn't all that good. But I think he masked a lot of the problems that uh, they had on the ice because his goaltending was, was at that level. And, you know, he walks away to Calgary. And then Chris Tanev goes to Calgary. And Troy Stetcher goes to Detroit. And then Tyler Toffoli to Montreal. And then as we find out, Josh Levo goes to Calgary as well. So three of their pending UFAs all wind up with the Calgary Flames, which is another, you know, great subtext and another layer to all of the intrigue here that it wasn't just that they couldn't retain these guys, that they end up playing for you know, one of the Canucks' biggest rivals. So that's going to be fun to watch whenever they get back out onto the ice. So to get to your question, you know, they're not better. They're, they're, it, it's impossible to say that they are a better hockey team as they sit here right now with these players that have walked out the door. But they did get Nate Schmidt from Vegas, and he helps their defense. There's no doubt that he's a legitimate top four guy in the National Hockey League. He plays the modern game, transitions the puck, skates well, can bring some offense, defends. You know, So they've got Quinn Hughes. Now they've got Nate Schmidt. They've got two pretty mobile guys on the back end. There are still questions about uh, their defense core because they lost Tanev and Stetcher, and they've only brought in Nate Schmidt. So they're going to have to plug some holes with some young guys, and that carries risk, certainly. But at the same time, they have built this prospect pool, and they think that they've got some players that are ready. So that's the defense. And then up front, goal scoring hasn't really been an issue for the Canucks. When you look at Elias Patterson, you look at the addition of JT Miller, you know, Horvat had 10 goals in the bubble in Edmonton. He was terrific in the playoffs. And so, you know, there are still questions. That I think they're one top six forward short uh, because Toffoli left. And so there's questions about how they're going to fill that. But the biggest issue with the Canucks, and it's been this way for the last couple of seasons, is they still have too many bloated contracts of you know veteran guys that are sort of clogging up the opportunity for younger players on cheaper contracts and i look at you know louis erickson still has two years left on his deal at six million per and jay beagle and antoine roussel and you know brandon sutter they signed tyler myers and you know he's a year into a six-year contract and so um you know, there are some contracts that are kind of holding them back. They've got a ton of young talent. There's some real excitement in this market about this young talent because like Pedersen and Hughes have shown, like these guys are legitimate budding superstars already. Um, and look, Braden Holpe, absolutely legitimate National Hockey League goalie, right? Like Vesna winner, Stanley Cup winner. He hasn't had a great run the last couple of seasons, but the hope is that the change of scenery, working with Ian Clark, who is the goaltending coach here in Vancouver, and he was the guy that sort of, worked with Sergei Bobrovsky in Columbus and made Bobrovsky into the goalie that he was before uh, his first year in Florida last year that didn't go so well. But Ian Clark is generally regarded as one of the best in the biz uh, as a goaltending coach. And so Holpe will work with him here in Vancouver. And the hope is that, you know, Holpe and Demko, I think, can provide 
certainly a solid goaltending tandem. I, you know, I don't think they're spectacular. Uh, Demko has shown flashes of brilliance, but there's still lots for him to learn. And Braden Holpe, you know, he, he's not going to be the guy the way he has been in Washington for the last bunch of years. And so he's going to have to adapt to uh, a crease sharing program and we'll see how that impacts him. But, you know, the Canucks hope that uh, he can sort of build his game back to where it was before it started to slip here these last couple of years. But you're nothing in the NHL unless you've got quality goaltending every single night. And so I don't think the Canucks are going to have the kind of goaltending that they had with Jacob Markstrom these last couple of seasons, but their hope is that uh, this job share between Demko and, and Holpe will provide them more than adequate goaltending. And then they hope that uh, they get some improvement from within with some of these young guys that showed pretty well at their first look at uh, playoff hockey in the bubble in Edmonton. All right, and you said about the tandem. Do you think it'll be more of a 1A, 1B tandem, or is it a starter backup? Yeah, you know, that's a question that's been kicked around uh, basically since Holpe signed here, and I don't think anybody's got the answer, and that's why we all need hockey back, because so we've got these questions, and, you know, there's no way to get uh, answers. Uh, I think the Canucks believe in Thatcher Demko, you know, a second-round pick. They've groomed him. Uh, he showed when they needed him in those final three games against Vegas that he was up to the challenge, and the Canucks are hoping that he could pick up and you know where he left off. Now, he posted something like a 980 save percentage in those three games. Like he, you know, he was out of this world good on a short run. Like he got into a groove and got into the heads of the Vegas Golden Knights, but he's not going to be providing goaltending at that level every night out. So, um, you know, that's why I say there are still some questions about Thatcher Demko. He just turned 24. So he's got time on his side to continue to develop. They see him as a legitimate number one prospect. But I think this is more of a 1A, 1B kind of thing. And I guess for me, the question is, where is Holpe's game? And also, uh, you know, how will he adjust and adapt if he's only playing half the games or 40% of the starts as opposed to knowing for the last five years in Washington that he was the guy basically every night out? Like it is, it's a different mindset. I think it uh, changes the way you practice and you prepare and working with a new goaltending coach and you know, new surroundings. Like there are some questions that Holpe has to answer here, but he's got the pedigree. I mean, this guy is proven. And because he's spent his entire career to this point in the Eastern Conference, you know, I've watched him. I watched him on that run of the Stanley Cup final. I've talked to lots of people about Braden Holpe, but I haven't spent a lot of time around Braden Holpe himself. So uh, you know, from what I understand, good goaltender, even better person. And he sounds like the kind of guy that will fit in pretty seamlessly in the locker room. But again, I think for him, the biggest sort of change and um, you know, adjustment is going to have to be just to, to playing less than he's used to. And how will that affect him? And, you know, in some way, could less be more? Like if he, take, he backs off the number of starts, you know, can they find a way that he can use that as an opportunity to work more on his game and sort of get his game back to where it was not that long ago. So it's going to be a change. It's going to be a change for Holpe. It's going to be a change for the team in front of him, and we'll see. But, you know, I, my sense is that there is a baseline of expectation that Braden Holpe is going to be good. It's just a question of, you know, can he be better than that in the opportunities that he gets? And, you know, will it truly be a battle? Like, will their performance determine you know, who's going to get the bulk of the starts or does Travis Green already have it predetermined with Ian Clark? You know, if I had to guess, I would think that they would shade towards Thatcher Demko probably being the 1A guy. But, 
you know, that can change in a hurry. We see that goaltending uh, guys can get on hot runs, guys can struggle, injuries happen. And with a compressed schedule, as we all expect, uh, whatever the season's going to look like, you know, I think there are a number of variables and a number of factors that are going to come into play. But as I sit here right now talking to you guys, my sense is that Demko is the 1A, Holtby probably signed as the 1B. And there's a chance that Holtby's only here for one year. He signed for two, but he's going to be exposed in the Seattle expansion draft. And, you know, if Seattle is looking for a quality veteran, low-maintenance guy, kind of the way Vegas did with Marc-Andre Fleury, you know, not out of the realm of possibility that Braden Holtby, it's just a, a quick stopover in Vancouver before he's selected by the Seattle Kraken in their expansion draft whenever that takes place. Uh, yeah, I was just about to get into that. Um, Jacob, Jacob Markstrom, uh, he signs for he signs in Calgary on a multi-year deal. I think it was five years by six million, if I'm not mistaken. Six by six. Six by six. My mistake. Um, do you think? Like, do you think that uh, at that time, going through Benning's head would, was Seattle and the possibility of oh, if we were to sign Markstrom, then like there's the like uh, depending on the contract he was asking because I don't know if with Calgary he has a no move, no trade. What the situation is with that? But uh, do you think that Seattle played a big part in uh, in the choice to sign Holpe over Markstrom? I do. Absolutely, I do. And, yeah, Markstrom got the full meal deal in Calgary. He got six by six and the no movement clause. So uh, no questions about what Calgary's doing when it comes to goaltending in the expansion draft. But, yeah, had the Canucks committed to Thatcher or to Jacob Markstrom, it would have meant one of two things. Either they lose Thatcher Demko for nothing to Seattle or – if they didn't like that idea, they would have had to try to peddle Thatcher Demko and get something in return so that they weren't just losing an asset for free. But either way, if the Canucks had committed to Jacob Markstrom, who's going to be 31 in January. So before he plays a game for the Calgary Flames, he's going to be a 31-year-old goaltender, you know, entering a six-year contract. And that was the concern that like he's he's been terrific these last couple of years for the Canucks. And there's I don't think there's much doubt around the league that he'll be good for the first part of that contract, but it's towards the back end that, you know, that's when the Canucks really think that they're going to be into their competitive window. And I think they were worried about committing, you know, six years, 6 million bucks to a 34, 35, 36 year old goaltender who has had a couple of minor injuries, but as goalies age, you know, the, the worry is that uh, injuries are going to happen more frequently. So uh, yeah, I, I think Thatcher Demko's performance throughout the season and then those three games at the end against Vegas, I think they kind of gave the Canucks, you know, this real sense that unless they could get Markstrom on a team-friendly kind of contract, that they were prepared to move, that they felt they had enough goaltending, they felt that they could find a backup to Demko, a veteran guy, as they did with Wolpe. And so that kind of got the whole uh, ball rolling as far as what happened to Jacob Markstrom. I think the Canucks would have loved to have had Jacob Markstrom for you know, three more years, but look, guys play their career to get to unrestricted free agency. This is their opportunity to absolutely knock it out of the park. And so I'm glad for Markstrom. Uh, he was a good guy here in Vancouver. He'll be a good guy in Calgary. And this was his opportunity to cash in. He did. And unfortunately for him, you know, I think Jacob Markstrom wanted to see this through. I think he, he felt like he had started something here in Vancouver. I think he felt Vancouver had given him an opportunity to become a legitimate number one goaltender in the National Hockey League. But you hear it all the time. It is a business, and it just didn't fit for what Markstrom was able to command on the open market. It was too rich for the Vancouver Canucks, and as a result, they had to move on, and they are hoping that Thatcher Demko is going to continue to develop. They like what they've seen so far, and as I said, he's 24. So, you know, I think he's kind of coming right into his prime here in the next couple of years, 
And the Canucks uh, certainly like the career trajectory to this point, and we'll see how it all plays out whenever they get back out onto the ice. And yeah, like you said, uh, with Markstrom being 31 in January, that is always the uh, the gamble when you sign when teams sign players to long term contracts and they're late, when they're in their late 20s, early 30s. You guys know that better than anybody with uh, contracts like the Louis Erickson, Jay Beagle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't worry. I'm a I'm a Toronto fan. We have to deal with uh, our Fisher. <laughs> All right. Well, I actually got a side question there um, about Hopi and the Demco tandem. So let's say let's say Seattle takes Hopi after the season. Do you think Demco or not Demco? Sorry, Di Pietro could step in. Then is that kind of the yeah? Part? There's a lot of moving parts here. You know, Mike Di Pietro had a nice season in Utica, his first full year as like the legitimate starter as a pro. And the Canucks like everything about Mike Di Pietro. Love the character of the kid. How hard he battles. Uh, his performance on the ice, but there's so much uncertainty about the American Hockey League and if it's going to get up and running. And, you know, Di Pietro's at a point in his career where he needs to play. He need, like he can't afford to have a season where there's no game action. And so, you know, when I look at what's going on in the American Hockey League when it comes to COVID, I know that there are still plans for February. Uh, we'll see how it all shakes down. But this is an important time in the development of Mike Di Pietro. The answer to your question is yes. Like, I think that's the Canucks see that as the chain of command. But... He, you know, would he be ready to be the backup? Would they be prepared to go with a Demko and Di Pietro tandem if Holpe gets claimed by Seattle a year from now? I'm not so sure about that. I wonder if the Canucks wouldn't go and find another veteran guy on a short-term contract, allow Di Pietro a season or two to continue to play and play a lot and play in every situation and just continue to groom his game at the American Hockey League level um, you know, again, when I've said all the things that I, you know, I truly believe that the Canucks feel strongly about Thatcher Demko, but I also think that with Pedersen and Hughes and Horvat and the way JT Miller played, you know, the Canucks want to believe that they're coming into uh, a part of their competitive cycle here the next two, three years where they think that they're going to be in the mix, where they're going to be, you know, a team that has legitimate Stanley Cup aspirations now. Uh, Colorado's in that same mix. It's not going to be easy to get past Colorado in the West. You know, Edmonton with McDavid and Drysaddle, you have to think at some point that they're going to get some traction. Uh, Calgary with Markstrom, I think they feel that they've got some life there. You know, Dallas got to the Stanley Cup final. So even though the Canucks want to believe that the next three years are important to them, you know, it, it, nothing happens in isolation. Like there are other good teams that also have those same Stanley Cup aspirations. I just don't know that the Canucks would feel fully confident in a duo of Demko and Di Pietro. And if something happened to Demko, you know, all of a sudden you're leaning on Mike Di Pietro while this team uh, wants to believe that it's, uh, you know, in the the fast lane uh, to success in the Stanley Cup. So, um, you know, I, I'm not Jim Benning. I, I, I don't have a full grasp on their plans. And some of that's crystal ball stuff because we just don't know you know, we don't know about the American Hockey League. We don't know uh, about development of guys like Demko and Di Pietro. But, yeah, they seem like Di Pietro as part of the plan moving forward here. I just get a sense that there's probably another veteran goaltender to be added to the mix if Holpe goes to Seattle before it would be a Demko-Di Pietro tandem at the NHL level. All right, and about the uncertainty for next year. So one thing we think is a certainty is the Canadian division. How do you think 
the Canucks could fit in an I love it. I, I really am excited about this idea. Um, you know, sometimes uh, out of tough situations, good things happen. And I think that's the, the case with COVID here. I mean, nobody wants COVID, obviously. And COVID has wreaked havoc on the world and certainly on professional sports. But if the offshoot is that we get a Canadian division out of it, you know, that's something that was never going to happen. So I love this idea. And, you know, I mentioned the the Calgary connection to the Canucks with Markstrom and Tanev and, and Josh Levo. Like that adds a ton of intrigue. There's already some intrigue anytime Connor McDavid is on the ice and McDavid and Dreisaitl. And, you know, the Canucks think that they've got their dynamic duo and Pedersen and Hughes. So, like it's fun to watch uh, those guys all share the ice, and and we've seen that for you know a couple of seasons now. Uh, you know it's hard to know a team like Winnipeg, any team that has Connor Hellebuck has a chance, and so you know there's a ton of top end skill up front for the Jets. I know that I wouldn't write them off even uh, after their early exit from the playoffs, and some of that was injury related. So um, you know I think Toronto is the best team on paper. But until the Leafs prove that they can get it done in the playoffs, they're still the Toronto Maple Leafs and, you know, the, the black cloud of 1967 and their last Stanley Cup, like that's going to hang over them until they change their own narrative. So, you know, I'm not the only one that says, like on paper, I think they're the most talented bunch. They've got the most firepower. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I like the Leafs as the top team in a Canadian division. And after that, it's pretty wide open. I think um, – you know, I, I, some of the things Montreal did in the offseason, I, I think getting Carey Price a legitimate uh, NHL backup so that he doesn't have to play every game and they don't have to rely on him. And, you know, Jake Allen, I think, can get the job done there. Uh, Tyler Toffoli, that was a nice acquisition at uh, an affordable price for them. So, you know, I liked that for the Montreal Canadiens. And, you know, I, I guess as I sit here, I would probably put the Canucks in the middle of the pack. I would sort of put them third or fourth if I was listing all the Canadian teams. But again, I don't think there's a lot to choose between the Canucks and the Oilers and the Flames and maybe even the Jets in that regard. And, you know, I'd probably put Montreal in that large group. I think you got Toronto at the top and you got Ottawa at the bottom. And then it's kind of a, a jumble of really five teams that will have to play it all out. But like, I just love this idea that if it's a 60 game season, you've got seven Canadian teams. So you do the math, you know, they probably play each other, 10 times each, right? And and then can you imagine going into mm-hmm. a best of seven? You've played a team 10 times in a compressed regular season and then, you know, straight into a best of seven in the playoffs and you'd see one of those teams again. Like, that would, like if it was the Canucks and Calgary, that is a steady diet of Flames and Canucks. I mean, that would, the rivalry through the roof. Or if it was the Battle of Alberta, like, that would be incredible. Like, the storylines, you know, Vancouver played Toronto in the playoffs. You know, that's something that hasn't happened since 1994, and way back then, Toronto was in the Western Conference for some reason, but that's the way it shook down. Uh, like, you know, that was before social media and it just the fan bases and the battles on Twitter. And like, it would be, oh, it's so tasty. Like, I, I really do hope that this all comes to be because uh, it's not going to last. But for a year with the border closed and everything else, like, serve it up. I, I couldn't get enough of an all-Canadian division and then into the playoffs. I just think it would be wild and I think it would be spectacular. All right, and about rivalries, like in this division, there's so many rivalries, like Toronto, yeah. Ottawa, Montreal. It's kind of their own little triangle of rivalry. But as a Jets fan, I know that the rivalry that I've been getting with the Jets a lot in the Canadian division is Vancouver. I, I just feel like the Jets in Vancouver are starting to battle it out, really. Like they always are meeting each other, and whenever they play, it's really close and gets intense. And 
You got Myers from the Jets goes to Vancouver. I just think that'd be a good. I agree with you. I don't think the Canucks would like uh, that matchup. You know, you, you say that the games have been close. I think the Jets have beaten the Canucks something like 10 straight times and 14 out of the last 15. Like Winnipeg has owned the Vancouver Canucks. If I'm not mistaken, the last time the Canucks won in Winnipeg, Alex Burrow has scored in a shootout. Uh, we're talking like 2014 or something. Like they, since the Jets returned, Jets 2.0, uh, they have owned the Vancouver Canucks. Like it just it hasn't even been a fair fight. And part of that is because I mentioned those five dark years for the Canucks, those sort of coincided with you know, that span where it looked like the Jets were going to be the next great team in the National Hockey League. And and people were propping the Jets up as this model of draft and develop. And and look, a lot of those pieces are still in place. We know that uh, there are some issues on defense, but it hasn't panned out in the playoffs the way that the Jets had hoped. But in the regular season, Winnipeg has owned the Vancouver Canucks. But I agree with you when you think of all the, the high-end pieces the Jets have up front. Uh, and, you know, I think as the Canucks continue to grow and develop that, Eventually, they'll figure out a way to beat Winnipeg. Um, that yeah, like I, I think it would be great. Like back and forth, I think you'd have uh, you know just a, a ton of high skill players on the ice. If we're talking about a, a best of seven playoff series, travel wouldn't be that onerous. You know, that's the one down thing. Now, travel's the same for two teams in any playoff series, but in the Canadian division, that is the one pitfall that you know if you got Vancouver, Montreal, or Vancouver, Toronto, as great as uh, the matchup would be. That's a ton of travel, obviously, for um, an opening round. But that's, again, it's a one-off. It's the way it's got to be. And it certainly beats having no playoffs at all. So I think if uh, the teams find themselves in that situation, you know, they may not uh, love the fact that they're going to have to jump on a flight and and travel uh, the distances that they will between games. But the fact that they are playoff teams means that uh, they've done enough, you know, to qualify for the postseason, And that's a positive and a step in the right direction. So, yeah, I mean, it comes down to pick your storyline. That's why I say like, you know, the battle of Alberta, the idea of Calgary and Winnipeg or Calgary and Edmonton getting a chance to play in the playoffs uh, with those two fan bases and, and, you know, the skill level that uh, those two teams have right now, that would be a ton of fun as well. So any way you slice it, I think you can come up with some really attractive matchups that would be fun, not only for the fan bases, but I just think in terms of the style of play that uh, the teams would employ. So well, let's see how it all shakes down. But first things first, <laughs> they got to figure out a way to get hockey back on the ice here. And spe- um, you mentioned a few times, you mentioned uh, about the Canadian division being a one-off, which, it does seem like it because uh, uh, due to uh, extraneous uh, circumstances involving the pandemic and border closure and quarantine and all that, um, the NHL, when you break it down, the NHL is a business and it's all, and they're more about making money than anything else. Um, say hypothetically, the, uh, the, we play the season with the Canadian division and the ratings go through the roof more than you, more than like any other year. Do you see a possibility of maintaining the Canadian, like maintaining the Canadian division in the future? I don't. I don't just because of the rivalries that are already in place. Like I, I think there's too much value uh, in Boston, Montreal, or Toronto and Detroit, or you know the, the original six matchups. And I think the wild card in all of this, guys, is Seattle coming on board. And and look, Vancouver has been out on its own on the West Coast forever, and without a legitimate rival like the Canucks have at times felt like Calgary was a rival you know they played the Flames in the playoffs in 82 and 89 and 94 and 2004 they've had some great epic battles with the Calgary Flames in the playoffs that's fine but the Flames don't see the Canucks as a a massive rival right they've got the Oilers so 
you know, for it to be a true rivalry, it has to cut both ways. And so the Canucks have, you know, they played Chicago three years in a row in the playoffs and that got heated and nasty and developed into a great rivalry. And, you know, the LA Kings at times, but the Canucks have never truly had that one rival that they can call their own. And so there's a lot of excitement here in Vancouver about Seattle coming on board and finally joining the National Hockey League. And I think for Seattle, you know, you, you want to hit the ground running. And one of the things that they've got working for them is they're tied geographically to Vancouver in the Pacific Northwest. And so, uh, I, you know, will Seattle develop a rivalry with the California teams? Yeah, probably. And maybe Vegas as well. But But you can't deny that, you know, two and a half hours away by car, you've got this city that's coming on board when the border is open and people from Vancouver, they'll make the trek down. They will like this idea of traveling to see the Canucks and, and having a team that, you know, you can go down to Seattle, watch a game and be back in your own bed at the end of the night. Like it's just, it's, it's never happened before. Like to see the Canucks on the road, you know, you had to make it an Anaheim LA weekend or, you know, now that Vegas has been on board, lots of Canuck fans have made the trek down to Vegas or Phoenix, but but this is something different, and I think it's going to be a ton of fun. There are already rivalries in sports, in soccer with Seattle. Um, you know, we've seen it, and so I think it'll be next level. And for that reason, among others, I think that the NHL will go back to something that resembles what we've been accustomed to. There's going to have to be a little bit of realignment, obviously, to bring a 32nd team on board, uh, but the league has its plans to do all of that, and I think that you will see – uh, a return to a Pacific division and you know, they want it. They want Seattle to hit the ground running and to have that rivalry from day one. So uh, yeah, I, I think that's a big factor in all of this. And, you know, I'm kind of curious to see like Seattle's a little bit hamstrung right now. When you think about Vegas and the way Vegas joined the national hockey league, you know, one of the great, if not the greatest expansion season of all time, right. To get to the Stanley cup final. I know they didn't win, but to take an expansion team to the Stanley cup final, you know, here's Seattle that is trying to get ready for an expansion draft and the league's not even up and running right now because of this pandemic. And, you know, their scouts aren't able to get out and around because there aren't games to scout, whether it's junior hockey or at the pro level. Like, it's it makes life that much more difficult for Seattle. And I know that, you know, they're paying $650 million as an expansion fee. They want every opportunity like Vegas had in its expansion season. And COVID is certainly playing into that. And so uh, I, I just think that, you know, when we get out to something that resembles a new normal, I think that the National Hockey League is going to try to do everything in its power to help the rollout for the Seattle Kraken to make that a success as quickly as possible out of the gate. I swear you're making this interview way too easy for us. You're getting you're getting into our next topics before we even <laughs> had a chance to discuss them. Um, staying on Seattle, uh, there there is a history in obviously non hockey. But in other sports with Vancouver Seattle rivalries with the I think the Vancouver Whitecaps and the Seattle Sounders and the MLS yeah. Yeah. and like you see with uh, the Jays obviously being Canada's only MLB team whenever they go down to Seattle to play the I want to say it's the Mariners um, you see you see Jays fans coming down from Vancouver like um, do you see so I know you already started to discuss it but do you see a Seattle Vancouver as being the basically the new like basically another version of Toronto Montreal or basically or like another uh, Edmonton and Calgary? Yeah, I mean I think rivalries take a little bit of time to develop. Again, the natural geographic part you can't deny it's there, and people have been waiting for this for a while. But you know if Seattle is like Columbus and Nashville and Minnesota, like most expansion teams, 
you know, it's probably going to be a bit of a chore. Vegas has raised the bar so high, like through the roof high for what's possible for a first year team. I, I think Seattle's going to have a tough time getting anywhere close to what Vegas accomplished. And so, you know, I, I think that on the ice, it's going to be a bit of a slow build. But at the same time, I do think that, and you're right, like I mentioned the, the soccer robbery, but I'm glad you brought up baseball because I've been down there and it is something. The invasion of Blue Jay fans. Now, it's different. I mean, the Mariners ballpark is bigger. The Mariners aren't very good. There are always tickets available. Uh, I think it's going to be tougher to get a ticket to the Seattle Kraken game just because inventory is going to be, you know, a cap of 20,000 or whatever it, uh, the capacity is there. But I do think, I think you're going to see Vancouver hockey fans make the trek. I think, you know, when star players from around the league, the guys in the East that only come out here once when they go to Seattle, I think you'd see some people from Vancouver make the road, trek down to see Crosby and the Penguins. You know, they only get to see them once in Vancouver. Now is an opportunity that's a couple hours away to go see them, uh, a player like that, a second time. So, you know, I, I do think that Seattle is going to feel the presence of Vancouver and Vancouver sports fans without a doubt. But, you know, are, will the first time the Canucks and the Kraken play, you know, it's going to get built up. There's no doubt. I mean, that's what we do in the media. But will it live up to the hype on the ice? Who knows, right? Like, I, I, I don't know. I think that the actual rivalry between the players to put on the uniforms, that could take a little while to build. And boy, if they could ever meet in a playoff series early, you know, I think that would be sort of the the ignition switch that really would put the, the, the rivalry into high gear. But it'll be there. There's no doubt. And I know people in Vancouver are excited about it. Uh, I, I know from a media standpoint, people are excited just to have another, you know, the Canucks, like their closest road trip has been Calgary, which is, or Edmonton, and now we're flight away. You know, I, I think even the, the Canuck organization is excited to, to know that they've got this game, that they see all these teams in the East and they always hear about teams like the Rangers, the Islanders and the Devils, you know, in that tri-state area in and around New York. They, you know, bus to games or, you know, play a game and be back home that same night. Like the Canucks rarely get that opportunity, but they'll get it a couple of times. And I think another benefit for the Canucks is teams are going to come through the Pacific Northwest now. You know, will the Canucks benefit from teams playing in Seattle the night before? And then the Canucks will catch teams on the back end of back-to-backs. I think that's another benefit uh, the Canucks will get from having a rival that close to home. All right, and a while ago you talked about draft and develop, like Winnipeg's plan or whatever. That kind of didn't really fall through too well. So do you think Jim Benning can redo that? And my second part of the question is, how long do you think Jim Benning has Yeah, I mean, his draft record has been terrific. They're, you know, Jake Vertanen hasn't panned out as a sixth overall pick the way that they had hoped, and Ole Alevi as a fifth overall pick. But when you look at Elias Pettersson as a fifth pick, and Quinn Hughes as a seventh pick, and... You know, Bo Horvat was in place before Jim took the job, but Bo Horvat has developed into the captain that they were hoping he would. You know, Brock Besser in the early 20s uh, as a draft pick. You know, there were a ton of teams that are shaking their head and wondering how did Brock Besser uh, drop that far. And, you know, the Canucks have done well. I talked about Thatcher Demko as a second-round pick. Adam Gaudet was a fifth-round pick. You know, they've done all right deeper in the draft as well, and they've brought those players along. The issue is, and we touched on it earlier, is that, you know, Jim Benning went out earlier in his tenure and threw way too much money and way too much term at way too many veteran players. And uh, that sort of caught up to them. Like, the, you know, one of the reasons that all those pending UFAs walked away this year was the Canucks didn't have the, the flexibility, 
in their cap to to make some of those deals happen. Like they would have liked to have kept a guy like Chris Tanev, but they didn't have the money. Troy Stetcher walks away for, you know, under 2 million bucks, goes to Detroit. The Toffoli deal, like Toffoli was a nice fit here, but they just couldn't make it happen because they've got these these contracts. And outside of Brandon Sutter, none of them are expiring this year. Sutter's into the final year of his deal, but you've got Erickson with two years left. Beagle has two years left. Antoine Roussel has two years left. And then you've got Tyler Myers, who's just a year into his long-term contract. And so, you know, it, it, it it's made life a little bit difficult on Jim Benning because when you look at what the Canucks accomplished in the bubble in Edmonton, and I mentioned this earlier, their young guys were terrific. Their young guys exceeded expectations for their first look at Stanley Cup playoff hockey. Like, all their young guys were really good. It was they didn't get anything out of their bottom six. You know, and and the deeper you go in the playoffs, the better the opponent, the deeper the opponent. You know, other teams are getting scoring from lower in their lineup, and the Canucks got next to nothing from their bottom six forwards. They didn't get much in the way of offense from the back end outside of Quinn Hughes. And that's been the concern is they didn't do a whole lot to improve the hockey club. We talked about that earlier as well. So they're hoping for improvement from within, and I still think there is room to grow for guys like Pedersen and Hughes and Besser and Horvat, but you know, can they squeeze any more offense out of the bottom six outside of Quinn Hughes? Will they get any more offensive contributions from the defense? They're hoping that Nate Schmidt is going to, you know, help in that regard. And then I guess they hope that they keep enough pucks out of their own net with the goaltending tandem that they've got. So, uh, you know, it, it's a the Canucks are a fascinating study. They are. Uh, I don't have the answers. That's why we need them to be on the ice here so that we can start to see how this all plays out for them. Because as I mentioned earlier too. There was no guarantee they were going to be a playoff team in a 16-team tournament. And if that hadn't happened, I'm not sure that guys like Benning and Travis Green are back to make the decisions for this hockey club moving forward. But they got a little bit of a break in that the playoff format was expanded and they took full advantage of it and credit to them for doing that. And that has upped the hype here in this city. But the question now is, like, how will the fan base respond if the Canucks take a step back? You know, there, there's like progress isn't guaranteed, right? Like just because you had a good run in the playoffs doesn't mean that it's going to happen every year now. You got to earn it out there on the ice. And so I'll be really curious to see uh, the fan base is divided on Jim Benning and the job that he's done. I mean, people can't deny that they have landed these core pieces of the organization. But when it comes to his trades, when it comes to his contract negotiations, when it comes to his salary cap uh, manipulation, you know, I, I think all those types of things are open for debate and discussion, and we'll see without being able to bolster his lineup, you know, can they be any better than they were in the bubble in Edmonton? That's the big question. And if they're not, how does the fan base react? After five dark years, people wanted to believe that this was the start of a, you know, a, a competitive cycle for the Vancouver Canucks, but it may not be. Well, you know, we'll only know once they drop the puck and start playing games here. All right, and about the lineup, like a while ago you said about their one top six forward short. So my question here, they got Brock Besser, Bo Horvat, Miller, Peterson, Pearson. Do you think Vertanen this year could step up into a top six role and really prove himself, or do you think this is kind of a... Uh, yeah, Jake Vertanen, you know, I'm not sure that there's starts. a player that gets talked about more in this market than Jake Vertanen. He's a local guy, you know, grew up in suburban Vancouver, and so that comes with its own unique set of challenges and, and uh, expectations. And 
the fact that he was sixth overall and, you know, guys like Nick Ehlers and Dylan Larkin went after him. And, you know, you look at the careers that they've already had. And, and here's Jake for 10 who scored 18 goals. And that's nothing, nothing to sneeze at in the national hockey league, 18 goals in a truncated season. But, you know, you dig a little deeper. He scored six of his goals in the power play, 12 were at even strength, but he's a guy that at 24 now, he turned 24 in the summer, you know, I think the best indication of what a coach thinks of a player, a coach can say whatever he wants, but the best indication is how he uses them, right? And in the playoffs, uh, Jake Vertanen was a healthy scratch for the opening game against the Minnesota Wild. And then Toffoli got hurt, and so Jake got back in the lineup. But, you know, he spent the bulk of his playoff minutes at even strength on the fourth line. Um, you know, when games were tight down the stretch, we didn't see a lot of him, if Travis Green shortened his bench quite often, Jake Vertanen was a guy that got swept up in that. And over the course of, I think he played 16 of their 17 playoff games, you know, he scored twice. And so there wasn't a ton of production, even though he had an 18-goal regular season. Uh, but when you go back to when play was halted in March, you know, I think he'd gone seven games without a goal. And his only even strength goal from the All-Star break in mid-January to mid-March he scored one even strength goal in that time. It was the ninth goal in a 9-3 win over the Boston Bruins. So not exactly, you know, a, a, a pivotal moment in that hockey game. So, you know, it's hard to get a full read on Jake Furtanen. That The guy skates. He's an elite skater. I think he's got a, a better than average shot when it comes to the National Hockey League. But the issue for Jake has always been sort of his processing of the game, the hockey IQ, um, and consistency, just you know, from shift to shift and period to period, game to game, and and I think that has held him back. And so people want to believe that you know this light switch is going to go on, and at some point he's going to figure it out, and he's going to become the player that the Canucks hoped that he was that draft day when they took him sixth overall. I don't know. By the time you're 24 in the NHL, if you've been a regular, you know it's hard to believe that a whole lot's going to change for you. If Jake Furtanen's an 18 to 20 goal scorer, that's a, a useful piece on any team. But I just don't know that he's ever going to develop into the top six sort of dynamic, consistent, scoring forward, big body, uses it effectively, you know, that could be a 25 to 30 goal scorer. I wonder if 18 to 20 is sort of the high end of the range for Jake Furtanen. And so when we talk about needing one more top six forward, if they put Brock Besser with Patterson and Miller, where he spent the first half of last season and had a ton of success, he was almost a point of game guy at the midway mark last year. Then that leaves a spot on the wing with Bo Horvat and Tanner Pearson, but Travis Green employs that line and Horvat particularly, you know, as a matchup guy, a shutdown and a checking role. And he hasn't shown an indication that he's willing to use Jake Furtanen in that fashion. And so that's what kind of makes it difficult to believe that, Bertanen is going to land a regular spot on the top six because if Besser then was to slot in with Horvat and Pearson, all of a sudden now Jake Vertanen is getting this chance to play with Elias Pettersson and JT Miller on a top line. And they played a little bit together in the playoffs, not much. But, you know, again, when it comes to sort of assessing what the Canucks have and where the Canucks are as an organization, if Jake Vertanen is your top line right winger and there's all these questions about him and his game, you know, I think that kind of drives home the point that they are still short one legitimate top six 
scoring winger to truly compete with the heavyweights around the National Hockey League. And um, the, um, in terms of uh, possible ways to add that that extra top six player, uh, cap friendly right now shows the Canucks at zero dollars in projected cap space, <laughs> which yeah they're at eighty. Their cap right now is at eighty three million and a thousand bucks. Do you see a possibility of if they can get that like get that cap space back, going out and signing a guy like a Mike Hoffman or Anthony Duclair, which at this stage of the game should be fairly cheap on a one-year deal considering it's almost December? Or do you see them just, just uh, going with who they have? Now, the wild card in all of this is Michael Furland, who you know has been plagued by concussion issues and only played four games last year for the Canucks and, and completed two of them. He left two with concussion injuries, and then he got back and played the first two games against Minnesota in the bubble and left, and that's the last we've seen of him. And... You know, I, I want Michael Furland to live a happy, healthy life for himself and his family. Uh, I just wonder at this stage with that many concussions and knowing what we know about head injuries, if he can get back to being a legitimate, effective NHL presence, right? Like his game when he's on it is being a big body, being physical. And, you know, he couldn't even finish these games. He Went down to Utica for a game, tried to get in some game action in February, lasted one period. And it you know, wasn't a hit or a fight. It was just the you know, dizziness and the symptoms that uh, returned. And then so he was off from February until he came back to the summer camp, uh, started to show signs of progress, and then was gone after two games. And so, you know, the Canucks can't devote a roster spot to a guy that they can't count on. And I don't think Furlan can give them any promise that he's going to be fully healthy and able to be a regular in the lineup. And I do wonder if they have to take the decision out of his hands and put him on long-term, uh, you know, that was another contract, right? A four-year deal. This is one year into a four-year contract. But, um, and that's why I say it. this is more about the person, Michael Furland, than the hockey player in my mind. But if he can't, then the offshoot is the Canucks could put him on long-term and utilize that cap space. And then maybe they could go out into the market. Now, I think Hoffman doesn't fit stylistically for the Canucks, and I know that he's probably the big fish that's out there, and how can you say, like, you know, any team. But he does a lot of his work on the power play. The Canucks had the fourth-best power play in the NHL last year. I I don't know where he would slot in because so much of their power play filters through Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson, and Pettersson's the trigger man, and Horvat, you know, he had 10 power play goals last year, was among the National Hockey League leaders on the power play. So... Um, I, I'm just not sure that Hoffman's a fit, but yeah, I mean, there are other players out there, whether it's Duclair, whether it's uh, Michael Granlin, like there are still players that are out there. And I think we're going to see that they're going to be forced to take one year deals and sort of bet on themselves and hope that uh, there's a comeback and that, you know, finances and people are in the seats and buying tickets and all those types of things. So uh, my, my sense is that, you know, there'll be a second wave of uh, not COVID. We're in the second wave of COVID, but I think there'll be a, a second wave of free agency and there will be some bargains to be had that guys are going to go for uh, lesser than their true market value, and they're going to have to accept that. And I do think that the Canucks, you know, will be ready to pounce, but there's a couple of dominoes that have to fall there. And I think uh, Furlan and his health and a declaration on, you know, whether he can play or whether they're going to give him the opportunity to try it again. Uh, that's the question that has to be answered before anything else can happen. So, yeah, I mean, keep an eye on the Canucks. If they do have some money to play with, my sense is they've always been a cap team. And I think that they would be looking to get out there 
and bring in another body that they think could help them, you know, particularly one that either plays the right side uh, or I was, a right shot or a left winger that is versatile enough that he can play the right side. I think that's, you know, that would be tops on their priority list. All right. Uh, Brody, you got anything else you want to get into? Yeah, okay, no, we're, not gonna, yeah we're not going to keep going uh, much longer. For, this interview is starting a little on. bit long. Thank you so much for coming on. And, yeah, hope to hear, uh, hope to hear from you soon. If you, You're always welcome back on the pod if you, wanna, if you ever want to discuss anything else about the Canucks. It was a pleasure. Well, I appreciate you guys. To thank Jeff for coming on the show. It was a pleasure talking to him. Before we end off, we have some big news to announce. Brody? Thanks, Matthew. We are proud to announce that we've joined the Sports Fluent Podcasting Network. We'd like to thank anyone who subscribed, told a friend about our show, or even if you just watched one episode, we wouldn't be where we are now without you guys. And the future is going to be even better. We, and finally, we would like to thank Anthony K from Sports Fluent for taking a chance on us. We won't let you down. For those who wonder what will change in the future, to put it simply, nothing. We will still be the same show coming out at the same time every week. A major thing that we agreed on when talking to Sports Fluent was that the show would stay the same throughout. This deal will, however, allow us to get more high-profile high guests on so we can bring you guys even bigger and better interviews. Well said. And with that, we'd like to thank you for watching this week's episode of the Broadway Talks Hockey Podcast. And thanks again to Jeff for taking the time out of his busy schedule to come talk to us. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Monday.